Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, Senior Counsel at the law firm Calfee Halter Griswold, and I feel like I've been saying this a lot recently, but today's show is a very, very special one. You see, today's podcast features the first in a series of show we'll do throughout the year that we're calling the Lessons from the Front Lines series. We've talked about these shows before, but for some of our new listeners, the Lessons from the Front Lines series will provide practical advice and takeaways that focus on a real-life tough lesson other compliance professionals and regulators have learned on the front lines of our industry. Think of it like a fireside chat with two great storytellers. Better yet, think of this type of podcast as your opportunity to sit down with an industry expert at a bar, grab your favorite adult beverage, and just start talking about some of the most critical issues affecting the investment management industry. And I I would add, if you're into that kind of thing, now might be a great time to go grab a drink. To help guide us through the conversation, we welcome in two of our favorite guests on the Compliance and Context podcast, Mr. Rob Kaplan and Mr. Bruce Carpati. As former co-chiefs of the Asset Management Unit, many of our listeners will remember Bruce and Rob from Episode 5 of the podcast, where we discuss the origins of the AMU. Before we jump into the conversation, however, there's a couple quick items I wanted to mention. Some of our listeners may have picked up on this already, but I am a huge fan of history. Hence, one of the reasons why for some of our regular shows, we have the History Has Your Back series uh, and that segment to dive into something from uh, history to help illuminate a, a concept that we can use Um, in our roles as compliance officers and legal practitioners. One of the things that I have enjoyed most uh, uh, recently that relates to history is the Hardcore History Podcast with Dan Carlin. And he does a fantastic job. If you want to talk about an amazing storyteller um, and, and you're into history, I would highly, highly recommend the podcast. But there are two concepts um, uh, that he talked about in, in, at different points throughout his show um, that also kind of helped spark this idea behind the lessons from the front lines, uh, you know, mini series we're going to do kind of throughout the year here. So I wanted to touch on those briefly. The, the first is there, there are really two distinct ways that we as human beings can, can learn throughout our lives. The, the first is, you know, Pretty uh, straightforward. <laughs> we touch a hot stove and we learn not to touch it again, right? Direct firsthand experience. The, the second uh, way that we learn is we, we read or we hear about somebody else touching a hot stove and thereby get all of the same benefits of that lesson of, hey, don't touch that stove without necessarily having to go through any of the pain. And supposedly, the latter is supposed to be the superior way to learn. I'm not sure whether, we certainly won't get into the merits of that on this show today. Um, I certainly think there's something uh, uh, that is incredibly valuable about going through something firsthand that might allow certain lessons to resonate more. But regardless of that, we're going to benefit from the from the second 
way that people learn. And that was part of the impetus behind this idea because getting to hear from people like Bruce Carpati and Rob Kaplan about, you know, what were some of the things that you were thinking as you were working your way through these certain types of cases and what types of compliance lessons can we learn? You know, hearing them tell their stories from the front lines will only benefit us, the listeners. The second thing I wanted to mention briefly before we get to the conversation is the most difficult part of looking at history often is that we already know what happened. (laughs) We are omniscient about whether the decisions that were made turned out to be good ones or not. And oftentimes it's hard for us to even contemplate what the parties were actually thinking when they were actually thinking and, and when they actually did those different activities. So the lessons from the front lines series gives us the ability to really go back in time and, and try to experience in some way what certain individuals in the stories, in the cases that we talk about, might have felt, might have known, might have tried to rationalize or try to respond in certain ways and, and try to get inside their minds to, again, better understand um, some of the issues that are being faced. Um, the, uh, again, us being able to do that gives us the ability to better understand what people were thinking in real time as certain issues were, were being faced, the ultimate decisions that were made, and, and how we can best learn from them. And so with that, let's go grab that bar stool next to Bruce and Rob. On the SEC's website, it states, we protect investors by vigorously enforcing the federal securities laws to hold wrongdoers accountable and deter future misconduct. The Division of Enforcement was created in August 1972 to consolidate enforcement activities that previously had been handled by the various operating divisions at the Commission's headquarters in Washington. The Commission's enforcement staff conducts investigations into possible violations of federal securities laws and prosecutes the Commission's civil suits in the federal courts as well, as well as its administrative proceedings. Today's Compliance and Context podcast is the first in a series of shows we'll do throughout the year that we're calling the Lessons from the Frontline series. We've talked about these shows before, but for some of our new listeners, this series will provide practical advice and takeaways that focus on real-life tough lessons that other compliance professionals and regulators have learned on the front lines of our industry. On today's show specifically, we're going to be going back to look at some some very high-profile cases, uh, but the focus of the show will not be centered around just a, a resuscitation of the facts of, of those cases. In fact, far from it. Rather, we want to use these cases as a foundation to discuss some critically important macro-level issues that affect the investment management industry and the markets generally. To help guide us through that conversation, we welcome in two of our favorite guests on the Compliance and Context podcast, Mr. Rob Kaplan and Mr. Bruce Carpati. As former co-chiefs of the SEC's Asset Management Unit, many of our listeners will likely remember Bruce and Rob from Episode 5 of the podcast, where we discussed the origins of the AMU. Rob, of course, is a partner at Deba Voice in Plimpton, and Bruce is now the CCO for a, I think, a, a tiny private equity firm out of New York called KKR, I think. Can't, the, the name escapes me. Suffice to say, these are VIPs in the securities, legal, and compliance world, and we're very, very thankful that they're here with us today. Bruce, Rob, 
Thanks for joining us and welcome to the show. Patrick, thanks for having us. Just very happy to be here. Thanks, thanks Patrick. Look forward to this. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's let's dive into the discussion. And as I mentioned at the top, we're going to kind of start a little bit at more of a, a of a macro level. You know, as former co-chiefs of the SEC's assets of the SEC's asset management unit, clearly you worked hand in hand with many of the other divisions at the commission, including the division of enforcement. And I, you know, to, to start, I would really like to hear from from both of you. What do you think the role? of the division of enforcement. What is the role of the division of, uh, of enforcement in the industry? And how does the SEC send a strong message in enforcement cases like some of the ones that, that we'll you know, kind of talk about later today? Rob, I'll, I'll try and take this first. I, I, I do think, uh, Patrick, you kind of described it well in terms of making sure that um, our laws are enforced, right? And that investors are ultimately protected. And so, through these cases, focused on, on the asset management industry. First, accountability, right? You want to make sure there's accountable individuals who, uh, if they transgress the law, have to be held accountable. Second, uh, for the industry, there's a deterrent impact of, of what uh, the SEC does. And you want to make sure that as it relates to future conduct, people are deterred. And third, you know, there's a communication aspect through these cases. You can really communicate and message um, what is appropriate and what is inappropriate uh, conduct. I'd agree with that. I mean, you know, if you step back for a moment, you know, if the question is, you know, how does the SEC send a strong message or more specifically through the Division of Enforcement, it's worth thinking about how the SEC sends messages at all. And, you know, I think there's a fair argument to be made that uh, the Division of Enforcement is actually not the ideal uh, mechanism to send messages. And I recognize that there's no doubt many a year, I was there for 17 years, where when we were thinking about an enforcement case, we would ask, what is the message of this case? Notwithstanding that, Right. The commission primarily is a regulatory agency, should be sending messages by formal rulemaking, which is laborious, but there was a notice and comment period, a mandated sort of cost benefit analysis, you know, what's the impact on the industry, or through um, statements of the commissioners or the leaders of the division, you know, whether it's uh, the division of investment management or trading in markets or senior staff members about what's important to them and what to look at and what industry practices they're interested in and not interested in, and certainly within the division enforcement as well. But I think it's what primarily happens, and I think it's it's really to where your question goes, is most of the messaging that's done to the industry is probably done, oh, and not only to short circuit exams and exam sweeps and statements by you know, Pete Triscoll and the head of exams, I think it the, 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 is through the Division of Enforcement and through the uh, administrative proceedings that are filed and the district court cases that are filed, typically settled, but filed. And the reason is, as Bruce said, there's an opportunity to tell a story and they tell stories. And the problem with enforcement is sometimes uh, the stories, it's, it's a flawed form to tell a story because leaving aside, it, it's virtually an ex parte story. I mean, sometimes it's an ex parte. I think it's probably more than saying virtually. Like, like orders, settled orders do have some degree of negotiation. Um, but the staff will say when you give them comments and you're negotiating an order and you say, look, you've got these facts wrong, they'll say, well, that's your view. Sometimes they'll say that. Sometimes they'll say you're right. 
Let's see, but it's our story to tell. And so the problem is you have a story that um, the staff can be very selective in how they tell the story of what happened. And then you have the remedies of that action, which don't always seem to clearly correlate to the story that has been told. And so both the language that's used by the staff, the facts that are selected, the facts that are deselected and don't make it into the final order, the messaging around that case in the press and otherwise, that's how they tell a story. And uh, Bruce is right. You know, the way that story is told, who is held accountable, that tells the story. So the staff certainly has, and the Division of Enforcement, I think, is the primary way the staffing not the staff, but the SEC itself as an entity in toto, both the commissioners themselves and the staff. Uh, that's kind of how stories are told. It's just a crude implement to do it. So that's interesting. I mean, and I appreciate both of your guys' comments. It strikes this idea in my head, and I've heard this phrase of art before, and I would wonder if you think that this that this does in fact happen then in the industry knowing all of that knowing that people might pay attention to the stories more than they actually do the regulations right and then because how those cases evolve can be very selective sometimes the interpretation that someone might take away might not be the right one there's this phrase of art regulation through enforcement and and I would ask you both you know do you think that occurs and and you know what can be some of the challenges involved there yeah, I, I, traditionally, regulation through enforcement uh, is viewed as a bad term. And I think when uh, when I, w I was on the staff, certainly sometimes you feel as if there's some in the industry who will say that whatever enforcement action you bring shouldn't be brought because uh, that's more for the policymakers or uh, for people in the other divisions to be able to kind of make those messages. I do happen to think that regulation through enforcement really means bringing to light some of the issues that these regulations simply by having regulations can't do. So, uh, you know, if you're thinking about, you know, a new marketing rule or a new valuation rule, how are you going to really make people adhere to the rules and the regulations and without enforcement, uh, those principles that are sitting in those regulations are, are hard to enforce. And so to me, there are a lot of uh, connotations around that term. And of course, there is a version of that, which, which actually is saying, you know, what the regulation really didn't intend for this enforcement to happen. But when I think about sort of the positive side of enforcement, I think it's very much about here are the rules, and it exemplifies how people can really come into situations where they don't comply with those rules. Yeah, I would pick up on what Bruce said, and there's really two components to it. The first, as he said, is you know what is frequently viewed as the pejorative of regulation through enforcement, and and I, I, you know, and I'll share my take on that in a moment because I think it's a thing, and I think it can be a problem. The second, it's I think within the spirit of the statement, but how as a practical matter do, do enforcement actions, and this, I think this is the second part of Bruce's answer, how do they end up being sort of effective regulation, frankly, in a way that's not bad by public policy? So I guess I'd say there's a bad public policy way it happens and a good public policy way it happens. The bad public policy to me has been when there's a practice that has been in plain sight of regulators for 
many, many years, decades. So I think about things like, you know, if you think about the question of under what circumstances uh, private equity firms needed to register as broker dealers because they were getting, you know, certain kinds of uh, transaction fees, certain kinds of uh, compensation, uh, you know, transaction-based compensation. And that practice had occurred in plain sight, not news to anybody. And in fact, uh, you know, the, then the uh, director of trading and markets had given a speech that basically said, uh, hey, uh, maybe you ought to be broker-dealers. You know, maybe you should register as broker-dealers, which because you're having these, you know, it, it, it's, it, you're acting as an un, uh, unlicensed broker-dealer. And that sent shockwaves through the industry because these practices had been ongoing. The right. remedy, frequently imposed by courts, uh, is just disgorgement, just complete disgorgement of the money you've made, which for right. private equity, hundreds of millions, collectively billions of dollars. Maybe I'm overstating it, but maybe not by that much. And then there was the Blackstreet case, which was about a lot of other things, but most famously about that issue. And maybe that's not even the best example, because at least you had the blast speech saying that the SEC was worried about it. And it went quiet for a long time. And then you had that or the notion um, of share class selection, which has been like the the raison d'etre of enforcement is questions about share class selection. And then for ages, right, retail investment advisors have been picking share classes and for their clients, and there should have been appropriate disclosures. I don't think people really ever doubted that if you made appropriate disclosures about your revenue, that you would it would be violative. And then about three, four years ago, the staff thought, well, maybe you're just violating your duty of best execution. And I think for a lot of people, they feel like if the first time they really feel like they're hearing about an issue is in the context of enforcement, that the SEC has decided that a widespread practice ought to stop or was a violation of traditional norms, but just hadn't been viewed as such, that enforcement is a very crude way to approach those issues and it's bad public policy. And maybe you could do it through what's called the 21A report, where you single out somebody, they're not actually, and you you don't sue them, but the commission issues a report that says, this is the conduct, we think it's violative. Next time, if we catch it, we're going to sue somebody for doing the same thing. That is a that is regulation by enforcement that is a crude way that happens. The good public policy way that was, uh, I think, a significant part of Bruce is, is talking about is when an enforcement matter comes out, Right. And it says you cannot do X. Right. You cannot have loans to affiliates that are not properly documented because we don't like that. It's when next time somebody comes to the chief compliance officer and says, hey, we're thinking about making this loan to affiliates that they say, you know what? There's this enforcement case that says you can't do that. Um, or the CCO has been waiting or other compliance professional or the GC has been waiting for a case to come out on point to be able to arm them in discussions with the business side to help set the standards. So, you know, it's there's, I think, lots of great ways that, that, that enforcement cases, when properly tailored, specific enough to give appropriate guidance, can be used to give people the color they need to run an effective compliance program. And I think that is not a bad way in which enforcement furthers the goal of regulation. But the first use of it, I think, has been viewed as problematic forever. Yeah. So let's segue then, because that's actually perfect. You, you and Bruce uh, both set set up, I think, our conversation about, all right, well, so 
If we're going to try to use some of these enforcement cases or other cases in a way that is going to be very beneficial for those in the industry to recognize a practice, see that there are certain conflicts or other types of issues involved in it, and then be able to use that so that if and when the issue arises inside their own firm, they know how to respond appropriately. They know what measures they might need to take to help remediate that issue and, and all of and, and kind of all of that alongside it. As co-chiefs of the asset management unit, were there consistent failures or compliance violations that you saw on a regular basis in some of the more, you know, high profile cases that, that, that you worked on? You know, certainly in our time, we worked on a number of cases where there were issues that came up pretty, uh, in, in a pretty repeatable way. Right. And, you know, for me, when I think about accountability, for misconduct, a lot of those cases involved individuals at senior levels of firms who really, frankly, thought they were above the law, right? That they believed they could do stuff that, in fact, they, they had to be held accountable for. And so, you know, so some examples that come to mind are cases involving quantitative errors or, or there, there was a case back uh, about 10 years ago, right, where there was a, a well-known quantitative manager who failed to disclose an error in, in its in its algorithms. And, and similar to other cases, you had a senior person who uh, really was caught in a difficult situation where investors were harmed. And rather than coming clean on what was, frankly, an error in, in its algorithm, uh, they decided to conceal it and, and, and not disclose it. And so that theme of uh, senior people deciding that, you know what, I don't want to be transparent. I, I don't want to disclose stuff was certainly a theme I saw uh, dur during my time. And, and there's other examples of that. What about you, Rob? Were, were there any um, consistent themes that, that you saw in some of the more high profile cases that you yeah, were on? Uh, so I agree with Bruce. I mean, there were a fair number of cases that I think of as almost cult of personality cases where there was a, you know, a founder who, um, or a senior executive who had very significant influence and wanted to achieve a particular outcome. And, it, and what's interesting is those weren't necessarily instances where people below decks didn't appreciate how legally fraught those issues were. And it's not like people didn't seek the advice of counsel, um, but people were very outcome driven and it just sort of dr drove to the wrong conclusion. I also think there's something that I saw, because remember I left um, in um, the middle of 2012, because I've been out now about eight and a half years. And I do think there's been some changes um, real changes in the industry. And uh, one of them stems from, you know, as you do compliance work, you know, one of the, it feels like the, the, if the, the, the golden rule of compliance advice that we give to clients is when people, especially when people are wrestling with how they're going to handle the governance around anything, valuation, or allocation, do whatever you're going to do, make sure we say, right, make sure it's consistent with what you've disclosed, right? And that you have to take debt, the reverend debt, whatever it is, make sure your policies are consistent with the disclosures. It almost feels like you don't even have to say that anymore, right? Everybody is that's the thing. And I think back in the day, particularly, and I'm not suggesting this is never the case, is people just really weren't that careful 
Um, and there were intended to be pretty significant deviations between policies, many of which especially uh, just as firms were becoming registered. You know, people had off-the-shelf compliance manuals and things like that. There was a real delta at asset managers between what they were saying and what they were doing. And there was also a sense of entitlement, which I think, you know, that runs through a lot of these cases, including, I think, you know, at least one of the cases that I think uh, Bruce is alluding to, where a portfolio manager or a principal of a, of a fund um, will believe that uh, they are so in it uh, for the investors um, in delivering value to the investors and view themselves, I think, as really, you know, having that be a driving force in their life. The things that are on the edges are just less important. And so they don't pay attention to that. Like maybe we're not getting our representations on skin in the game. Maybe it's changed in the last couple of years, but like we still have skin in the game. So if it's a misrepresentation, it's not a misrep. We just haven't trued it up. Like there was just not a view of the significance of investor representations. And if you wanted to be cynical, there was not a view that the SEC would come in and actually sue you for those kinds of uh, inconsistencies. So I think those yeah, are hey, the hey, 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 Rob, if I could jump in there, I mean, number one, and this is for compliance people as well, because people sometimes say, well, legal's uh, responsible for disclosure and they'll get it right and they'll disclose it. And, th and this is uh, something that goes to the heart of these cases that we're probably talking about is you have people at senior levels who are motivated individually and have incentives that may come in the way of, of disclosing stuff. And so I, I think principle number one for me on the compliance side, you got to ask yourself, is there consistency and disclosure between those senior most levels of the firm and what people throughout the organization are, are tell, telling investors? And so that's such an important principle. Yeah. Yeah. The old kind of adage, you know, say what you do and then do what you say. <laughs> like if you, if you are sure. going to, yeah, if you're going to, if you're going to do something, okay, then say that you're going to do that. And then by the way, when the rubber meets the road and you have to do that thing, make, make sure that you do it, make sure that you follow up on it. You both talk about this element. And I, I think people do this a lot, right? Like they can start to rationalize violative behavior in a way where they stretch the truth a little bit or they stretch what they've said. And they said, well, if I think about things in a certain way, then I, I kind of still am, you, you know, putting skin in the game or doing something like that. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's right. And, and by the way, the other piece is, you know, uh, that in, until the exam program really was as fully engaged as it's been, I think there's lots of views. Like I think about, we had a case, it might've been filed right after I left. I think it was one of Scott Weissman's case involving a, um, an asset manager um, that had engaged in a uh, cross trade uh, between a 40 act company and like a private fund. And it was on terms that were just not favorable. And I, and I, and I've thought about that from time to time because uh, whenever my clients call up and whether, and they have a, a cross trade and a liquid asset, the amount of energy that goes into really thinking about that conflict transaction and like what is the governance and what does Delaware law say and who's got to be independent then like and why because the staff's going to ask about it right when the exams come in they're going to ask about it and you just couldn't do that in 2012 right. and 2013 and maybe right. people are still doing it today but you cannot reasonably even if you wanted to be cute and just sort of slip one 
past the goalie and maybe not. Like, you just don't have that luxury of believing you're going to be able to do that. I'm not sure in 2012, 2013, 14, you could, you could do that. And for sure, people still do that today, but then they're just being reckless. Yeah. Yeah. You know, another kind of interesting part that can coincide with a lot of the activities around an enforcement action. And, and this is something that isn't necessarily like, you know, I, I so appreciate you all describing some of those behaviors and other types of activities that you saw kind of as a consistent thread running through some of the different cases that you had. One of the things that, you know, might not necessarily be something that people think about when they see the headlines involving an enforcement action revolves around this, you know, some of the narrative, probably some of the untold story behind how settlements are reached in particular cases and ultimately how different orders, you know, come down and, and some of the back and forth that can go between both the entity in question and, and the staff in the course of the last 10 years. And, and, you know, have you seen that in some of that back and forth that can occur or just ultimately really in however a settlement action was ultimately resolved that there can be, you know, some of the unintended consequences on, on the marketplace? Look, I'll say this. I mean, there are certainly, here's what you don't know when you're reading an order cold um, and you haven't been uh, a, a part to the negotiations. Uh, you don't know what conduct got left on the cutting room table, either because the staff felt they didn't quite have it, or since it's really all sausage at the end, that uh, the respondents said, look, we'll, or defendants, we'll settle to X and, and Y, but we're not settling to Z, you know, either because as a business matter, they don't want to, or, or because the evidence is shadiest on the most expansive theory. Or conversely, uh, Patrick, they say, we are going to settle to X, Y, and Z, but you're not going to sue any individuals. And so, uh, and so very often there are, look, and this happens all the time, there's cases that come out where somebody has settled to, uh, I'll give an example of a Compliance violation, a 20647. Now, there aren't that many standalones, but go with me on the hypothetical. There's a 20647. What really happens somewhere else is some version of like a fraud or something, um, or what really happened, what the government really thinks happened, and what the what the respondent is afraid that the staff is going to sue them on. And so you get the, the compliance policy and procedures cases, and you're like, oh my God, we have to get our compliance policy and procedures cases in order. We got to get our ducks in a row on outside business activities. Because if we don't, we're going to get sued and have to pay $30 million, right? And it's a total <laughs> outsized right. penalty to anything right. that happened. Right. And, you know, and look, to some ways, the staff may not love that, right? It feels like the staff's just gone. But their flip side is like, look, we didn't tell our story. But I tell you this, those people are going to get those get those outside business activities in order. because <laughs> they, the they got the they message. They got the message. They got the message. But like, that's probably not what the message is. You can say the same thing for how often, you know, an individual is sued and not like if an individual could decide that money is more important to them than staying in the industry, they may just leave the industry and you'll be like, that's a $50,000 penalty. Oh, and I guess the guy left the industry and he's barred. I mean, that is the problem. I think I said at the top of the call about what a crude remedy enforcement matters are to distill refined regulatory messages. Yeah. You know? and, 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 and Rob, I, I, I couldn't agree more with that. You know, when I read these orders, from a compliance perspective, there's so much of an opportunity to get a message out as to how the industry should be doing things uh, the right way. I think, unfortunately, what happens is sometimes that message is lost 
based on how the order actually articulates what occurred. And so I think you, myself, and clearly people in enforcement are focused on that. But I do think if you're sitting on the compliance side and you read one of these orders, you read the summary, and after you read it, you're still confused as to what you actually have to do, that that's a real problem. And so having used these orders as a way to make pronouncements around compliance, it becomes ever more important as to, okay, this is how I should be operating things, whether it's outside business activities, whether it's procedures to detect uh, material non-public information, right? We've known, we've known a series of cases, right, in that area that sort of tell you, you know, you have to have all these policies and procedures in place, but if it doesn't articulate clearly what you have to do, then you're left kind of scratching your head and don't know if you're getting it right. That's a, that's a good point. And in fact, I'll pick a real case, and I have the luxury, which I have way too often, of having not represented uh, anybody in Aries. But, but take that case, right? That is a case that you look at, and it involves Aries having recites that they traded millions of dollars, millions of shares of a security. Uh, it's about whether or not they should have had under 204 Cap A of the Advisors Act. They should have had more policies and procedures to better memorialization and haven't checked with anybody who might have been at MNPI who worked at Aries, but it's not an intent trading case, right? Um, and that it was in an open way. And that for some people, that case was a real head scratcher. Well, what's interesting, and by the way, maybe someone's going to read this and tell me I have a wrong take on this, but right, 204 Cap A says you need to have reasonably designed policies and procedures to prevent the misuse of material non-public information. You read that order, it doesn't actually say it was material non-public information. It said it was potential MNPI. And you may say, well, what's the difference? Well, if you're a CCO trying to figure that out, you may be like, well, Jesus, we don't have to just stop MNPI. We have to stop any potential information. Like if there's no materiality caveat on what that has to cover, then suddenly the policies and procedures as a chief compliance officer, as a compliance professional, compliance consultant, those are a very different set of facts because, you know, I think I said earlier jokingly, like, you know, what if the CFO gets a haircut? Well, that's not MNPI, but it could be non-public information. Like, do I have to make sure no one's talking? You know, that's sort of a reductio ad absurdum as an example. But the point is, that is no doubt, I'm guessing, because I have the luxury of not knowing, that, you know, probably somebody who represented Aries was like, we're just not going to sign on to this being material. We're just not going to have this charge document saying we traded on material non-public information. And the staff's probably like, well, we're not going to say it's immaterial. And here's the uh, accommodation. It's going to be, you know, potential material non-public information. So I'm not sure that's how that sausage was made. But that's just an example of how you can be left to have to distill changes from an order that no doubt represented some pretty vigorous negotiation. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And I mean, one, I, I very much appreciate kind of some of the additional perspective or context around that. It it sparks something in my head, though, that, that I also hear as a pretty common challenge for a lot of chief compliance officers and other practitioners in the space, which is that, you know, some of the cases that, that we've talked about and kind of alluded to today, they can often have very clear delineated lines between, you know, what's being in compliance versus, you know, what's some of the wrongful activity. And I guess my, my question for you all is, you know, do you always 
find that to be the case or or are there some occasions where you know it's not uh you might have something that's like you know relatively minor a violation that continued to escalate or snowball because the people didn't think it was a big deal maybe no one really cared to fix it or or in addition to that maybe there was a failure of the process alongside uh, uh, that, that like people didn't really pay enough attention to. And ultimately it was that failure of process that, that led to something worse. Yeah, and Patrick, and we talk a lot about disclosure as it relates to lining up to what a company or, or call it uh, the senior principals of the firm want, want to be saying as it relates to their strategies, right? That disclosure has to be consistent throughout the organization. I think the other thing that is a corollary to disclosure is the process that's involved on the compliance side. Once you, once you get your disclosure, call it in in a, in a consistent way. And so what we've seen historically to me over, uh, over the years as compliance has developed, it's how to take disclosure and also make sure you have a consistent process. So many of these cases, on the face of it look quite egregious. So if you're failing to disclose an operational error or you're not disclosing certain conflicts of interest and, and things of like that, it can look fairly egregious. But what I've learned, right, is if you're consistent in your disclosure and you set up a process where people are really demonstrating on the ground of your firm that you're following uh, the same process over and over as you deal with these issues, that certainly will prove effective. And so when I talk, think about cases, there's a series of conflict of interest type cases where firms fail to disclose a certain conflict of interest. The, the Falcone Harbinger case is one that comes to mind where you again had a, a serious uh, failure to disclose a conflict involving taking a loan from a fund. And, and that can, in its worst case, appear like uh, an awful type of situation, right? How can it be that a principal of, of a fund could actually take a loan and then pay his personal taxes uh, on that? But if you built a framework of disclosure uh, and then you have a consensus process for dealing with these types of conflicts, um, it starts to minimize the chances of A, you not having the disclosure in place and then having the ability to analyze uh, and deal with that conflict in the right way. And so the mechanisms that you set in place once you have the disclosure are dealing with, for example, a conflict like this, you would have your conflicts committee, you would have uh, LPACs, you would have that type of situation to cleanse yourselves of that conflict. Of course, there are certain types of conflicts that are too awful to even imagine. And maybe <laughs> a, a loan from your own fund to pay your taxes equates to that. But I do think there's a process element and to me, disclosure with process is ultimately a way to deal with these kind of what appear to be more serious situations. I, I don't know, Rob, if you feel the same way. No, look, I, I also think the stakes can be low enough that there can be what, you know, I think if you think about the magnitude of of a potential misconduct. Um, so to, to, you know, take away the substantial, you know, $112 million loan to a, to, to a founder or something like that. But, but given the way the SEC, I think, approaches a lot of these disclosure cases that you could have a business practice that's uh, it's just bad judgment and on the margins and, and people, 
and 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 what pro- that what happens is that when you get a due diligence questionnaire that asks you, I'm trying to think of a good example, but asks you, do you do you know do you do X? And and because people haven't been that thought- thoughtful on how you got to the sort of the small issue that, that, you know, you know, that, that rise up. Hey, here's the thing. Have there been any, um, you know, suppose you have a quant firm and have, I'm not talking about the prior case that was brought, but just hypothetically, like, have you had any uh, errors? Have you had any model errors? And suppose you had a small error. You had an error, you fixed it. There was a you fund paid for the trade error. You didn't think it was that much. You read your error policy. It felt consistent with that. And, uh, and you're asked, maybe you should disclose it or not. DDQs, have there been any model errors? No. Been no. Now you're in it. Now you're stuck, right? Because you either have to admit that you had one a year and a half ago that would have been a small fixable issue. This is Bruce talking about disclosure. Or now you're lying to investors. And now you have whatever the model error would have been or maybe not sticking to your policies and procedures. And it snowballed into a 2062 for misrepresentations to investors. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you then had an even larger model error later that cost investors real money, then I, that that earlier failure is failing to disclose a history of of you know regular periodic model errors that would have put people on notice that you didn't quite have your risk management down around the model and you could implode your firm over what would have been I don't mean to be hyperbolic, but over what would have been a really small issue to start. So I, that to me is the risk: is that you don't take something small seriously, you have disclosures that ignore it. It snowballs, and then you have a pattern in practice as it goes on that you could have really avoided, and, and, and you don't know how to get yourself clean. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. I mean, that that in fact relates directly to you know what we were you know talking about earlier, where you you can have this again this activity that really, if you have a really good compliance program, that's exactly what you're supposed to catch. You're supposed to catch where there's a tiny error that occurs, and then you get people who when that happens and then they remediate it and they think, okay, well the problem's behind me, and then they get that DDQ in and they think. Oh, like that wasn't really an error. I mean, you know, it's a, it a little blip. It was, you know, things were, but, but in reality it was, and then it happens. And then down the road, right. You get that exam that comes in or you get something that occurs where actual investors are harmed. And now that little tiny issue really snowballs and escalates into something much larger. Yeah. Hey, hey, Patrick. And, and, and another aspect of this to go to where we started, which is accountability if you have the right tone at the top and people throw out tone at the top all the time, but you know, what we're talking about in terms of whether it's operational errors or discrete conflicts of interest, you're going to have firm management be in a position where if they have the right tone at the top, right, there's going to be discussion around, okay, how do we deal with these situations? And our process will have a way to elevate those situations and escalate them right back back to management. So in, in what we were talking about, either with that operational error or with the conflicts of interest where you had a manager who took a loan or alternatively was preferring some investors over the other, if you have, it's like a feedback loop. If people want to do something at the top, it, it comes down, people start to make objections. And then in a circular fashion, it goes through and it's escalated. And at the end of the day, the people make the right decision around whether it's the transparency as it relates to errors or informing your investors as to what conflicts of interest are potentially there. Yeah. So we've done, and again, one, I, I so appreciate you know both of your commentary on that on that subject matter. I know that that's critically important for a lot of the um, a lot of the folks listening to this podcast. 
you know, having served as co-chiefs of the SEC's asset management unit and, and in dealing with some of the issues that, that you just described, now that you both are on the other side of the industry, Right. You're serving in the industry. You know, how have your views on some of these related topics changed and and, you know, have they changed, I guess, would be would be another question there. Well, I am much more sympathetic or empathetic to compliance and the struggles of trying to get everything right. You know, if, if you're at um, an investment firm and have to make sure that everyone's doing the right thing all the time. How do you really make sure that that can happen right? And so the idea that things can go wrong, they will go wrong. And I think for me, right, making sure that you're at a firm where you can respond the right way as it relates to the issues we've been talking about. So being more sympathetic probably to the issues that arise and how compliance can have a difficult time because you're left in a position where you can be held accountable for issues that are out of your control. Yeah. And I guess I'd say for me, there's a couple of things. One of them, I think my guess is I'd have no small number of cheerleaders on this point uh, in, you know, for the good folks who are listening to the podcast. But, uh, you know, I think that uh, uh, 20647 violations were an inevitable tack on to any other substantive violation even if it was, you know, you had someone engage in a violation of the anti-fraud provisions and there were sufficient policies and procedures, you know, but I think at the SEC, the view is the mere fact that the conduct occurred uh, was tantamount to evidence that the control environment around that uh, experience, you know, around that that conduct was lacking. I mean, maybe. I thought, I thought Rob, you were known as Mr. 20647. Uh, to want to bring uh, standalone uh, policies and procedures cases. Yeah, we look, we brought some of those. I, I have no issues with those standalone cases. If that's what they were about, there was some guy who went like on missionary work and he left his job for years and while serving chief compliance officer. But my point is that there are lots of times where you can cite a firm. L- listen, as, as a compliance professional, there should be room for sabbaticals for a year or two, Rob. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It might as well be mission work. It's of all the things to do. But, um, but you know, the idea that you can have, you can charge a firm without charging compliance policies and procedures. Um, I think my views are actually, um, I don't think I'm being self-congratulatory here. I believe that when I was on the staff, I was very self-conscious about what it meant to charge individuals. And there's always a push for individual liability. Uh, it is a, a, a call that is, it's almost become uh, a tagline um, to uh, criticism of the Department of Justice or the SEC. I can't tell you how often, even in movies, I think it might have been the big short, they make a big joke about how, you know, oh, don't worry, all these people were prosecuted and went to jail for their, you know, reprehensible behavior. And then it, they say, well, no, just kidding. None of them went to jail except this poor guy. And it's got like Guy Foray from Goldman or something. And, but the idea is that, like, look, I think that responsibility for lots of this conduct in our business is diffuse. And I think if you sue somebody, there should absolutely be, when appropriate, individual culpability. I get that. But I'm not always so confident that SEC matters are careful in how they parse that out. And it might have been that I, you know, I had been in the trial unit when I was at the SEC before I was an assistant director. And then before I was in the asset management unit, you had to try some of those cases and you would get memos from the staff. And when you have to show what is your evidence that people knew, And it would say the defendants knew 
that the revenue, you know, there, there'd been an agreement to do buybacks and it wasn't bona fide. And they knew that there were bricks in the shipments, right? And they knew that it wasn't really shipping products. And they knew, did they? Did they all know? How did they know, right? And um, so I think I, I didn't need to be out. So my views have not changed on that. But that is probably the point in which I've had the, the you know, I've most worried that the public clamor for individual culpability and liability, you know, really clashes with, I think, what is somebody's fair due process rights. And so that's that's been heightened. If we could go to the big short and maybe, the, Patrick, this is the next ep- episode. Um, I, I got to say, as it relates to individual accountability, the narrative in the big short that the government didn't hold people accountable, that the government government didn't reorganize as it promised I take a hundred percent issue with that. And I do think ultimately when we were in our positions, we did hold people accountable. A lot of what we talked about today is about holding people accountable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's another piece, you know, it's, it's just obviously beyond the, the four corners of, of, of what we're talking about, but you know, this notion that has always cracked me up a little bit of the regulatory revolving door that, you know, that you would go easy on somebody at wherever, fill in the blank. Goldman was always a good punching bag. Or, you know, at Morgan Stanley, you'd go easy because you were trying to line up a cushy job and were trying to really, you know, help your bona fides. I just think most, almost everybody I knew at the SEC, it just, they, were, they were just incorruptible on that issue. You would want nothing more than to be able to sue individuals if you could um, and hold well-placed, prominent, you know, members of of the business community uh, accountable. And so I think the staff, you know, they they largely have taken that seriously. I just think there's instances where they haven't. And I think, uh, as I may have said on the last podcast, I think to me, the biggest shift since I've been out and have gotten to know a lot of people who work in the business is that, you know, I think I believe that when, when, when I was on the staff, that most people, uh, they certainly wanted to make money. There's no doubt about that, but were really willing to bend the rules to do it. Um, within reason, but really mostly, and to the extent they were compliant, it's some cost benefit analysis they had done at the time to be compliant, not because they actually wanted to get it right. And I will say, I got a lot of clients and not everybody's Boy Scouts, but I don't have clients that actually want to break the law and don't want to be on the right side of things. Where they draw that line can vary, but I don't think I had that perspective. I think that's an important one to have. And I think when you're uh, at the SEC, you know, I think your bias since you only see people in these moments of where their their conduct is being questioned, is to assume the worst. I think it's very hard to get the benefit of the doubt on your conduct, and I think that that perspective has shifted. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate b- both of those responses because for, from you know, from each of you, it actually highlights some of what we were just talking about, even on the last episode when we had SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce on to talk about CCO liability, and you know she talked about you know like Andrew Ceresny's remarks and and talking about kind of the three different areas where often CCOs get charged, and the first two. Are, are typically like almost very akin to the cases that we've talked about today, where you've got a problem that's occurred and and either the CCO is complicit in it or clearly they're not functioning in a way that they should be in order to catch and or identify, remediate that violative activity. And then there's this third prong that's a little bit softer and that's a little bit harder and that maybe, you know, potentially that, that that's what gives some folks in the space some anxiety 
in that, you know, they, they, they are trying to do the right thing and they, they really are trying to be thoughtful in a way that is ultimately going to allow them to be dynamic and flexible from a business to generate new, uh, 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 you know, business lines and operations and other stuff, but, but also stay within the white lines and figuring out where, where that interpretation lies. So, I guess let's, let's maybe kind of sum up and I, I want to hear from each of you, you know, whether it's during your time with the asset management unit or, or since you've left and just kind of what you've seen that, you know, informed or you, as you reflect on then your time in the AMU, if there's one or two lessons from some of the cases that we've talked about that you would take away, one of the things that, again, like a, a consistent thread that you would say, you know, this is something that if you are getting in to this business and if you are serving in the role of chief compliance officer or counsel to one of these firms, something that you would absolutely want to make sure that you're taking into consideration. I mean, I, I have like nitty policy answers. I'm not sure that's the perfect one or maybe it's just a reflection where our things are now. If I were a new CCO at an asset manager, the first one of the first things I would do is I would make sure I understood all the sources of revenue that uh, the firm is receiving um, that are unrelated directly to providing advice to individuals and uh, scrub them everything from like you know bank sweeps uh, to you know referral fees to you know any kind of rev share to uh, any you know anything any kind of benefit you're receiving and uh, evaluate those and uh, check to see if they're uh, sufficiently disclosed. You know, I've, I just feel like even, you know, even after all of these years, I've still had instances with very sophisticated financial institutions that when they really dug, uh, they found things they had not previously really understood to be disclosable or they just simply didn't know about. It was happening at a part of the business that, you know, just had a, a contracts, you know, about how, you know, whether it's order flow or anything else, but just really, uh, I think, evaluating and having a good handle on the sources of benefit that the manager is receiving by virtue of doing their business, or as the government might say, follow the money. Um, but I think, those <laughs> right. are, you know, I think that's a, that's a great place to start. Yeah. And, and Rob, on that point, right, there's, there's, as a chief compliance officer, having the expertise to deal with what are complicated business issues. And oftentimes I'm presented with the question, what makes for a good compliance officer? And you could be the smartest guy, understand everything, but if you don't have the ability to relate to people in the business, so I would add relationships are fundamental. So you have the understanding, you know how the business operates, you're not going to get anywhere without the relationships to understand the people at the top and to make sure at the end of the day, when we're talking about disclosure and process, right? That everyone's accepting of, okay, we need to disclose it. We need to have a process for this, that there's the tone. And so how does that come about? First, you got to have expertise and you got to do that. And then you have the relationships and be willing to put yourself out there with the business so that they know that you feel a certain way and that they can trust you. I think what Bruce is saying is hire expert outside counsel. I think that's how I decode. That's how I took that. That's how I took that as well. It was, how I took the, rever it was the reverse, Rob. Hire expert compliance officers. You also, you also do need uh, your rep. We once in a while need that. <laughs> that's great. All right. Well, look, uh, let's let, let's get you both out of here with one last, maybe a little bit more fun question 
for today. I'll tell you what, I'll ask two questions. You, you, you can pick the one that you want to answer. The first one is, you know, we, we are now, we have finally left 2020. We are in the year 2021. What's one thing that you are really looking forward to doing in 2021? And the second one is, if you don't want to do that one, is where's one place or what's one uh, thing that you're really looking forward to, uh, to eating <laughs> when you can go back out to restaurants again or go visit someplace? Well, I mean, listen, Katz's Deli in New York comes right to mind. I mean, a, a nice pastrami sandwich from Katz's. You know, for me, since Washington is not a place where, you know, it's not such a good restaurant scene. To me, I'll tell you what I'm looking forward to is I want to go, like so many, you know, NBA stars, I want to go to Disney World. I have... Uh, uh, kids that are of age. They were the perfect age. We had a trip that was planned a couple weeks thereafter. I broke every good as my second generation of parenting here. So I should know better. Every rule of parenting where I told my kids like, Oh, we're going to go. And it's going to be two weeks and it's going to be awesome. And here is pictures of what we're going to do and see these videos of these hilarious smiling kids. That's going to be you in two weeks. <laughs> and then we got to cancel the whole goddamn thing. So, uh, forward crushing my children's crush foods. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Well, uh, Rob, Bruce, thank you both so, so much for coming on the show today. Really provided invaluable, uh, you know, insight and advice, uh, great practical takeaways for all of our listeners today. Um, again, thank you both so much and, uh, look forward to having you both back on the show here at some point soon. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me again. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfee and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guests, Bruce Carpati and Rob Kaplan, for coming on the show to share their invaluable insights on some of the issues surrounding SEC enforcement and how it impacts our industry. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. And if you have a lessons from the front line story that you'd be willing to share with us, you could have a chance to be featured on a future episode of the Compliance and Context Podcast. Definitely check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for us at Compliance and Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcasts or go to ComplianceAndContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 